Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team and KIT. Hey, and welcome to the first episode of Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, brought to you by Ericsson. Hi, my name is Jason Duff, North American Oil and Gas Lead for IBM Consulting. I'm here today with two of my Houston Oil and Gas crew, Jerry Lewis and Brian Woodward. Hey, guys. Hey, Jace. Great to be here with you, Brian. Great to be here with you. Should we just do quick intros about ourselves? Please, let's go. Audience, I guess I'll go first. My name is Jerry. I am a digital transformation, customer experience, enterprise agility, digital guy focus on retail consumer experience and how to bring those things into the oil and gas industry. And I've been with IBM seven years. I've been doing this digital thing for about 25 years. So great to be here. Brian, how about you? He's the smartest guy, by the way, Brian, on this podcast as yeah, well, yeah. isn't he? Let's just put I that mean, out there. I think we took half the session with Jerry's intro. So <laughs> I'm just going to say this is uh, Brian Woodward. I've been working in and around the oil and gas industry from a technology perspective for in the last 21, 22 years. And it's been a great privilege, but boy, have we seen some changes, right? And I think the industry, I've grown up around the industry in my career, and I think we're seeing more change in the industry today than we've ever seen, right? And I think the craziness we went through in the last two or three years has certainly been a huge catalyst to accelerating that change. So I'm just super excited to be part of this podcast and talk about those things. For the record, Brian, that was 27 seconds longer than my intro. So Nice work. Still wasn't as good as Jerry, so Brian, sorry. <laughs> it wasn't. But, I, but I, Brian, I, you're, the, I, you're the best looking one, so at least you got that going for you. Nobody's ever said that before. So, yes. <laughs> so guys, the two things for me, if I kick it off, the two things for me that have really kicked this as something that we're really passionate about and something that the industry has to take r- real seriousness is really COVID and energy transition, right? I mean, COVID has kicked the living daylights out of us for two years we started working from home. There's a whole different way of working. There's this new hybrid flex models that everyone's talking about. And then we've got the energy transition of the business transforming itself, but how do we retain and attract those staff? Let's go back to, for me, that's the two bigger items. I mean, Brian, would you agree? Is that the big sort of things that have really hit us really, really hard to move this? Yeah, 100%, Jason. I mean, I think we sort of had a little bit of, I think we've had a little bit of a perfect storm in our industry in the last couple of years, right? I think COVID has really forced the issue around being more digital and enabling, you know, distributed workforces to work and execute their job in remote capacity. And I think that's taught a lot of us in the industry what's possible. But also, you know, the, you know, everything that's going on around energy transition, I think is also creating a different mindset and a different requirement in the industry for the type of talent and skills, you know, you want to attract. And we talk a lot about, you know, energy transition, but our customers that we work with every day now have to attract the same type of talent that Google and Amazon and others who play, you know, heavy in the technology space need to be successful. So there's quite a big, I think, competition out there for the best resources and finding a way to keep them engaged and finding them a way to want to work for you. And finding a way for them to be able to be, you know, the creative, you know, folks that they are, right? 
Yeah, Brian, those are all really good points. And we see that every day with our clients. And one of the things you said struck me, we came up with all these ways to work remote and we got good at it and technology got better. And now people feel like they can do their job from home. So why should they come into the office? And you have to couple that with the fact that companies like Facebook and Netflix and Google and Apple are making decisions like, hey, you know what? You can do your job from anywhere and we'll adjust your pay maybe, or we'll give you a different kind of you know, treatment if you're going to be remote versus inside, but you can do it wherever you want. So imagine if you're choosing between Facebook and an oil and gas major, and you've got to decide whether you're going to take the job that pays you just as well, but you're with more of a Silicon Valley startup, but you can work from wherever you want, or you're going to go work for an oil and gas company where you've got to be in the office three days a week, despite the fact that you feel like you can do your job from anywhere. So that's a real issue that companies that we talk to every day are dealing with. It's a really interesting and challenging development. I see most of our clients now at 3D. I mean, we talked about it just before this. Most of our clients, multinational, national, midstream, upstream, are all looking at three days a week in the office, right? It's almost a demand. It's almost gone from a nice to have we're okay, but almost a sort of, you know, you must get back in the office. Is that what you guys are seeing as well? Because I think that's a huge issue for us. Of Yeah, I think it's a global issue right now. I mean, it's obviously, I think we're living it every day in our industry and we're seeing a lot of our customers really grapple with how to get folks back in the office, back engaged in the office. I mean, you guys know in our own office, right? And IBM, what are we doing? We're bringing a food truck in to try to attract people to come in for lunch. I mean, there's a lot of programs, you know, that and money being spent on trying to bring people back in the office. And I think there's this concern. If you stay 100% virtual, you stay, you know, 100% remote, you lose a little bit of your identity and you lose, you know, maybe a little bit of your culture. And it is a real tug of war, right? I think around what's the right sort of level, if you will, of stickiness, right? In-person, you know, face-to-face contact, but not pushing it too hard that you don't, you know, push out some of your most valued resources because they don't want to work in that manner. And they've seen another way to do it, right? It's interesting because just today I was listening to our CEO, the CEO of IBM, Arvind Krishna, his internal office hours conversation. He was talking and reflecting about how recently call that the last quarter or so, he's had a lot of face-to-face meetings with senior executives from other firms talking about various issues like CEOs talk about, and they've all been face-to-face. And he was making the point that, you know, there's a reason that we used to work together. In fact, it's been 300 years, I think is exactly what he said, 300 years that we've been working face-to-face. And now we're fundamentally changing the way that we work, but there were reasons why we got together. And when I'm sitting there with these executives, and again, I'm sort of ad-libbing what he said here, he was pointing out that you know you can see facial expressions, the level of engagement is higher, the excitement is higher. And look at sporting events, he went on to point out, like at the US Open, it's full. And you know, without that energy, sports just aren't the same. I mean, you guys remember what it was like watching mm-hmm. basketball with no fans or football with no fans. It was really lame. Yeah, I mean, kind, imagine, of, kind of remind me of my high school now that I think about it, right? <laughs> yeah, you went seriously. to high school? You went to high school, Brian? Yeah, yeah he, he dropped out. Yeah. He got his GED later, though. That's right. Hey, so Jerry, just on this one, though, this isn't new to us, right? There's always been this flex model around of we're all trying to get people back, specifically in this industry. How do we attract more female back into work with a flexible model? So this hybrid flex clearly isn't new. I'm just trying to work out in my own mind as well, you know, was it working before in terms of doing a flex model and can we do something differently this time? Yeah, good question. I mean, in my experience, Jason, it was always an option that you could ask for. 
right? If you were a working mother or if you had special accommodations that you needed, like that was always something a company could do for you or grant the permission to do. Or if you were designated, remember when I first joined IBM seven years ago, I lobbied to be designated remote so that I didn't have to go to the office because I had been used to for a long time as a consultant working from home because I would travel to my client site. But that was the give, right? You work from home if you travel to your client site. But when you're not traveling to your client site, working from home, it's different. And so I think what changed is that now people realize or feel like they can still do the work and maybe even do it more effectively. Well, I mean, that, I think that, not I mean, there's a disturbed. lot of, I was going to say, Jerry, I'm not to interrupt you, but there's a lot of data out there that says productivity didn't go down, that productivity did go up, right? And I think there's a lot of people in the workforce that feel very strongly that they were more productive. You know, they weren't spending two hours each way in traffic or, you know, maybe over the course of the last two or two and a half years, they relocated themselves, you know, outside of the city and their lifestyles better. And so, you know, it's, Jace, I mean, I think to your point, I think this is not a new issue Absolutely. in the workplace, right? I remember in one of my previous roles, I worked, you know, with a client that, you know, had a hundred percent virtual you know, workplace policy pretty much. And new CEO came in and, you know, kind of flipped that on the ear and everybody had to return back to the office. And it created, I think, a lot of the emotion and maybe a lot of the upheaval that's occurring now. You know, what I think really maybe the challenge that companies face is it may not be a one-size-fit-all model, right? You know, and if you spend your majority of your day in conference calls with people across the world, you know, in our business, right, we do a lot of work with, you know, colleagues in India or, you know, colleagues in, you know, South America. And so there's a lot of people that, you know, if they come into the office, they literally sit, you know, behind their terminal on a WebEx and they're on calls 10 or 11 hours a day. But I agree, Jerry, you know, a bit what, what Arvind was saying. I don't think there is any replacement for in-person contact, human-to-human contact. But you got to, I think, strike the balance. And I think maybe where the pushback is coming from is the mandate, right? Mm -hmm. You must do this. You have to do this versus saying, create a, I guess, an environment where people want to seek the human contact when it's relevant, right? You know, Brian, I thought, oh, sorry, go on, Jerry. Yeah, sorry, Jace. I'm sure we'll get better at not interrupting each other as we podcast never. more. That will, never, that will never happen. We'll, <laughs> yeah, keep, we'll but, keep talking over each other and trashing each yeah, other. We're okay. <laughs> but, you know, Brian, you said something else that made me think. When you think about the sustainability agenda of the energy industry and the oil and gas companies that are transitioning, the whole idea that you would force your employees to spend two hours in their cars which is generating greenhouse gas emissions, would fly in the face of the mission of the company not to generate greenhouse gas. And so there's even some hypocrisy in some of those positions that I think we're only just beginning to understand. And there's an altruism, I think, in the workforce of tomorrow that wants to be a part of changing the world and making it better. And sometimes when you're forced to do something that strikes you as hypocritical, that even makes it harder for them to do it. I think this is a great subject, guys, for us to get universities, CXOs. This is what I'm really interested in this podcast, getting real people's input and then trying to share some ideas of what's working and what's not working. I mean, in IBM, what have we done? We said we'd do a couple of podcasts. We've got a monthly get together, at least with some, you know, get the people around the table and do a sort of a who's who in the zoo type of thing. But really be interesting as we go on. I'm really interested in finding out what others are doing. How do we learn from this? And then, 
hopefully then feeding it back into the colleges and the universities. Because if the people are knowing what they're coming to, then we'll choose us or be more attracted to our industry. I think for me, that's yeah. that'd be yeah. really key. I love this. You know, Jason, I mean, it's funny you say that. And maybe I'll poke fun at ourselves. We're certainly not the next generation, if you will, in terms of the workforce. Right? I'm 21. Well, okay. Mentally. Yeah. I'm maybe not even 21 mentally, Jerry. Thank you for that one. I feel good. Yeah, but I think you made a really great point. I think in terms of the talent that's coming out of the universities or the early talent that is in the industry, I think there's a different expectation set, right? And I think there's different tolerance levels, you know, in terms of how far they're willing to be pushed, especially you know, maybe in a job market right now where these specialized skills are relatively scarce and people can be a little bit choosy. I mean, obviously, I think the broader economic picture always sort of changes people's tolerance levels and disposition of what they'll accept or what they won't accept. But I think one thing is for sure, I think that, you know, we, all of us, right, that are doing this podcast, let's face it, we're not, you know, in the beginning of our career, right? We're maybe in the last 25, 35% of our career, we have a different, I think, mentality and a different mindset in terms of how we want to work in the way we want to work. And a lot of the executives, I think that run, you know, the companies that we all work with, you know, whether it's in this industry or adjacent industries are probably similar to us generationally, but you almost have to step out of your box a little bit and say, it's not just about what I think. It's not just about what my generation thinks. How do I keep you know, the workforce, the next generation of the workforce engaged in working the way that they want to work to be productive. We've all got two daughters each. There's six daughters from this. So <laughs> joking apart, guess what? Our daughters will be interested. We've all spoken about this a couple of days ago over a beer as well of, you know, how attractive is our industry to females, et cetera, and the way of working. Sorry, Jerry, go on. Yeah, no, one of the, it's interesting because I think we all have, we all, meaning everyone, has the tendency to think most people are like themselves, Mm -hmm. but we aren't just talking about digital folks here, right? The workforce of tomorrow isn't just digital. Think about the folks who are out there, like in the oil and gas industry on the rigs, right? Out there at the well site. Those people don't have a choice. They have to go into the office. And there were a lot of discussions in the last couple of years about the equity of having to go in when you didn't have a choice, like the frontline workers in New York City, in the metro areas who had to go into restaurants or had to go into work on the subway or the bus or whatever it was, facing additional risk from COVID or other issues that other people who could work remotely didn't face. So where's the equity in that? And is that a part of what the conversation needs to be and how the equation has to change so that we appropriately reflect being in person in someone's pay, for instance, just as an idea? Like, I think that's part of where things have to go. You know, I was talking with a multinational CIO a couple of weeks ago at dinner, and he was at a conference, a resource conference. And next stage, next to him was a digital, it was Google, actually. And there was a whole bunch of young people around the Google sort of HR team looking at it. And the oil and gas, there was very little. So the CIO went and sat, uh, joined the queue, tapped someone on the shoulder and said, hey, why not come across here and talk? And they said, hey, you're an oil and gas company. I didn't know you did IT. And I think that's one of the other issues as well. I think we as an industry need to be smarter with our marketing, et cetera, because I think all this bad press that we've got in the last two years has been just taken absolutely crazy. And people are not realizing what we've got and where we're going to go, which, Jerry, goes back to your favorite subject. How do we attract and retain people in this digital 
age in the energy transition? How do we get the young Jerry, Brian, and Jasons that were probably going to be more interested in joining a distribution banking or utility company than oil and gas? For me, that's the, also the biggest thing about you know where do we go in the future? Yeah, a lot of the marketing and branding and statements about sustainability and transition for me are geared towards attracting that talent because it's mission oriented. It's something bigger than the company itself. And for me, it's quite tactical in the sense of attracting the kind of talent that they need to attract. And also, if you think about the end-to-end value stream for oil and gas, I mean, it all winds up somewhere in someone's car or as plastic or in some other fashion. And at the end of all those journeys is some digital application. You know, if it's the loyalty app you use when you get your gas, or if it's some other application or website you use to buy products from Amazon or another vendor, you know, at some level, the oil and gas industry is playing a role there. And so how does the oil and gas industry indicate that it's not just about pulling hydrocarbons out of the ground? We do a lot more than that. And you can play a role in a much bigger part of the overall kind of value chain in our economy. And if we're going to transition, be a part of changing the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And Jerry, I mean, I think that the industry is in the process of rebranding itself and is going to have to continue to rebrand itself. Rather, you're talking about getting hydrocarbons out of the ground or you're talking about electrification, the business models that our customers are, you know, operating under and maybe the challenges they have today, you know, they are becoming more like technology companies, you know, more, more than anything. And I mean, you know, kind of coming back to what we were, you know, talking about earlier, they almost have to kind of maybe behave or think like Google or Amazon, right? And when we talk about, you know, forcing people into the office. And if you're competing for that talent, that's going to go work for those technology companies that give completely flexible working schedules in terms of hours that you work or where you work or how you work. I think we have to be careful in the current you know, time that we're in not to knee jerk too fast and go back to the old way, because I really do think it's going to constrain a little bit you know, the attractiveness of the workforce to this particular market. Brian, do you not think we'll see more partnering as well? Because Jerry always makes a point on the digital area to both of you guys that we're not going to have enough people. People won't want to join all the companies. There's a certain amount of work. Aren't we going to see more partnering happening going forward? So we do use, whether a JV or there'll be more partnerships, but with ourselves and Microsoft and Chevron and Exxon and others of and BP, et cetera, to actually do the work. That's the way I see this, because how can we go on as an industry separately and struggle like this versus just changing the game a bit and trying to drop the IP angle of it and at least assimilate the right sort of skills or to simulate, yeah, consume the skills in more of a controlled fashion as a, a business, if you understand where I was going. Yeah, I think so, Jace. I mean, and I do think you're seeing pockets shift that way. Right. I mean, you know, we talk about open source and, you know, trying to industrialize or standardize, you know, data models around certain domains in the industry, whether it's surface data or whatever it is, you know, and you guys know that, you know, the client that I work with on a day to day basis and they're much more ecosystem focused than they ever have been. And I think they truly recognize that in order to help their customers, complete their, you know, digital transformation or their digital journey, 
they have to be much more ecosystem focused, right? And I think it does create a lot more, you know, sort of, you know, openness, if you will, in the industry. Yeah, it's a demand supply thing, right, Jerry? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's always yeah. the thing that you're always on about me of how much work there is to do and how, where we're going to find them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And going back to what you said earlier, Brian, about you know mandating folks to be in the workplace, if you think about what's in the head of a digital native, if you think about the ways of working that get digital done, which are all about agility and empowered squads, mission-driven squads, fully cross-functional empowered squads, none of that is command and control. No. It's all agile. It's all reactive. It's all reprioritization. It's all fast failure and learn. And this whole notion that I'm going to command you to do X flies in the face of the mentality of digital talent today. And I think that is a fundamental challenge that the engineering cultures of our industry needs to overcome. And partnering is a great way to do it, right? But internally, that has to happen too. You know, Jerry, it's funny you use the word command and control, and it really triggered a thought in my head. And it's maybe a little bit of a spinoff of what we're talking about, but I still think it's super relevant is, you know, if you do start to, or you do still consider to sustain a flexible workforce where you allow a lot of remote working or complete remote working, you know, I think companies are really trying to grapple with how do you maintain that command and control? And there was a spot in the New York Times, I think it was a week or two ago that, you know, eight out of the 10 largest companies in the United States right now are using workforce productivity monitoring software on individuals, you know, equipment that they use, rather it's their laptop or whatever. And it was a pretty extreme case, but I think really interesting. There's, there was a lady that was doing some contract work in accounting and they were taking a picture of her at her computer every 10 minutes. And if she stepped away to get coffee or she stepped away to, you know, to use the restroom, they weren't paying because she was on contract. They weren't paying her for that 10 minutes when she wasn't in front of the computer. And, you know, I think maybe we don't realize this, but, you know, it's another dimension of complexity or, you know, in terms of, you know, not losing, you know, access or connection to your workforce. And, you know, when eight out of the 10 largest companies are monitoring their employees' productivity, then that tells me that, you know, and they say, by the way, they said in the spot that this is the largest or the fastest category growth of any software type in the industry, workforce monitoring on a laptop. And it blew my mind to be, to be honest with you. I I thought, yeah, I mean, Jason, could you imagine if they were taking pictures of you every 10 minutes at your, well, I was going to say, what about on our morning calls? What about, I would take a picture of Jason, our morning calls with no shirt on or something. That'd be truly frightening. (laughs) Sorry for once I've been left sort of (laughs) speechless without speechless without a word to, that's quite funny. I know, Brian, that's a super, I think that that idea that our economy and the spirit of how we work in this country would evolve to that literal productivity engine that says, if you're not working, you're not getting paid and we're going to monitor it and prove it. I think you're going to turn off 95% of the workforce and no one's going to want to work for you. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. It, it, I mean, the counter view to that is, and they talked about this, is they've been doing that in factories for a hundred years. Right. And now the technology exists to extend it to professional workers. Right. And so the argument, I think, is the counter argument. By the way, I I tend to agree. I think it's a little bit of kind of a freaky thing that's going on. But, you know, the counter argument to that is, is, 
if you have the right way to monitor productivity, then you reward employees, you know, based on data and not based on, you know, well, schmoozing their the, boss the, or whatever, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the biggest defeat to the whole argument is this notion of, you know, you pay someone who's an expert a thousand dollars an hour because they can do 10 times the work in an hour of somebody who makes a hundred dollars an hour, right? So you're paying me a lot of money. And yeah, I did it in five minutes, but that's why you're paying me a lot of money. So this whole idea mm -hmm. that for a professional to be monitored and say, hey, you've got to clock eight hours. One, it flies in the face of, I don't necessarily, I'm not talking about me, but just one, don't necessarily work a straight eight hour day, right? So there's no treatment of the fact that I could be on my phone or networking, you know, at dinner or wherever it is, one, but two, how much more productive is every unit of work that I do, every communication I send out, every you know, line of code that I write, is it better than somebody else's? And I think that's part of what gets lost in those in those very direct measurement models. I've seen people measure keystrokes. I've also yeah. seen on the other side, people measuring when people were working during COVID, measuring the usage of the licenses and trying to prove to the board that there was actually more usage as go back to I think your point, Jerry or Brian, that there was more usage of the applications and people weren't at home. I remember the first week, by the way, we were off in COVID. Someone called me from IBM and said, well, you know, you guys are off. And it was, a, I'd had some pretty serious conversations about working from home because working from home generally meant, if you remember, Q, the end of what, March, early April 2020, when we all started working from home, it was a tough one for all of us to explain why we were doing it. And there was a concern from the board management of, hey, are we going to keep on working? And I was like, of course we are. And so I think we've gone through this whole sort of area. I think, Jason, you know, maybe to bring all of this together, I mean, I really do think it comes down to if you hire your workers that you trust, right, and you build relationships with them and you think strategically around how you maintain engagement, and I would argue that doesn't necessarily mean you force somebody into the office, right? But, you know, if people feel like they're valued and people feel like they're connected you know, then I think they generally stay productive for you. You know, I think, you know, last two or three years has really, you know, maybe pushed the boundaries, if you will, around, you know, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. I mean, I think you could probably make a very good case. And probably this is why some of these companies are using these monitoring tools, et cetera, is there are people out there that aren't very trustworthy and Absolutely. maybe are, are abusing the system and not doing the work that they should, but I would argue that exists in the office, out of the office. I really think the challenge is, is to hire the right profile of people, find a way that works for them to be engaged and stay connected and build a level of trust where, you know, that they, you know, they feel like they're getting something positive out of their relationship with their company and vice versa. And so, you know, they keep working at a level that produces value for the company. I would agree. I think this is why we get to, as we said, what's the title of the podcast, the Energy Workforce for Tomorrow. We need to make sure that the right models there, we attract, retain, and engage the right staff. I think you've just wrapped it all up. I think I'm really excited to get the guests on. Clearly, this is number one, listeners, the podcast. We decided as a team that we'd get together and have a sense of what do we believe, what do we understand, set the base, if you like, and hopefully it gives you a good sense of, you know, some of the items. We'd love to hear from you guys of what else we should put in to some of the episodes. What we want to try and do is do 30-minute interviews with, as we said, CXOs of multinational, national companies, 
universities and colleges and really get this sort of flow going and learn from each other. I'm really excited about this. I don't know about Ian, Jerry, Brian, any last comments? I think an interesting element to this podcast is it doesn't have to just be, and it won't be, you know, CXOs and university folks only. For instance, I'm going to go out to the welding. I don't know if it's a good oh, female welder. Female welder. Female welder. So I don't think we mentioned it, but this podcast, you know, ordinarily as podcast stars like we are, we'd be paid thousands of dollars per episode or something. But instead, the money that would be paid to us is being paid to a charity. In fact, the charity sponsors, I think, this welding, female welders thing, or as part of it. And so I'm going out there and I'm going to interview some of the students who are in this vocational trade based education organization, the founder of it, I'm going to interview as well as some of the students, and that'll be a topic of a podcast. And so there's going to be a distinct or a unique flavor to some of these that you might not get in a strict format. So I'm excited about the variety we're going to have, Jace. Brian, how does he get all the easy gigs, by the way? Did you notice? I don't know. I think earlier in the podcast, he mentioned something about being paid $1,000 an hour. Yeah, but I certainly noted that one down, right? I'm trying to figure Remember, that out. Remember, it was yeah. it was not me, it was an individual. <laughs> yeah. But no, hundred percent, Jerry, I agree. I mean, this is super exciting to be part of this. I think there are so many interesting topics in our industry, you know, based on the transformation that's going on in front of our eyes. And, you know, I think as you stated, Jason. We'd love to hear from the audience, right? I mean, we'll certainly try to steer this in the topics that we see maybe, you know, surfacing at the top to be either the most interesting or the most complex. But I'd love to hear from our audience as well around what do they want to learn more about or is there somebody they want to hear from? Because, you know, really, I think all we're trying to do, I think, as part of this is to figure out how to curate, you know, the talent that's required to drive this industry in the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, it helps shift the thinking into a model that's going to drive success for the people that it employs, the industry employs, and for the industry itself. Right. Good news. So, guys, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you and speak to you next time. See you later. Bye, guys. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. dot